Good afternoon, everyone. I want to give a big thank you to Pastor Webster and the good people at Prince Albert Baptist Church for hosting this. The church is facing challenging times now, and certainly we need revival. We need God's Word to help us get through these uncertain times. And so a big thank you for all those across the country, Brother Flanders in the U.S., to be willing to help with this and to put this together. And we pray that it will be a blessing to God's people. As mentioned, we are in times we've never been in before. I've asked even the most senior of my senior saints in their 90s if they have ever experienced what we are experiencing now, and their answer all been the same. Never. Not in the 95-year memory of my oldest senior saint have they experienced anything like this. We have times that we're just not prepared for. We have folks that have lost loved ones, and of course, losing a loved one is most difficult in the best of circumstances. But now, with the funeral homes shut down and limits on how many people can gather, this interrupts the mourning and the grieving process. We have people that have lost their jobs and are in financial hardship and have real wonders on how food will be put on their table and how their rent or mortgage will be paid. We have those that were living alone that were already lonely and being with their church family on a Sunday and a Wednesday were the high points of their week. And now that that has been taken away from them, they are even lonelier. We are in times of tragedy. With this in mind, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth, chapter number one. And I want, for a few moments, to take a look at the idea of hope in the harvest. Now, of course, you understand that in the book of Ruth, it is more than just a love story, more than just a story of how Ruth and Boaz get together. It is a story of redemption. But for our purposes this afternoon, I'd like us to see that there are two main themes in chapter number one. The theme of how people handle tragedy, and a theme of God's overarching providence. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for Christ, thankful for our salvation. Lord, thank you that we can have this opportunity to share God's word with people. Lord, we're in a desperate time. Lord, we ask that you would help us would you work in our hearts? We trust that you are bringing good out of this for your glory. And all these things, O oh Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, as we understand and read down through the book of Ruth, we start out with this idea of tragedy. The entire situation of the first chapter is tragic. In verse 1 and 2, it introduces us to the first tragedy, and that is one of famine. The Bible says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephraites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came to the country of Moab 
and continued there. Now, in verse number one, it gives us a little bit of background that says the story of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. Now, in those times, towns were usually very small, around 400 people for a town and centered on the top of hilltops. There could be a few larger centers, like the city of Shechem, but for the most part, they were these scattered small towns and extended families lived together in these multi-room compounds. Now, the surrounding hillsides were scrub wood, so what the people would do is they'd burn them off and then on the side of the hills, terrace them and use them to plant wheat and barley. So oftentimes when we read of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest of the Old Testament, we have in our mind, what I think about is my boyhood days of Alberta, where you have wheat fields and alfalfa fields stretching as far as the eye can see. But in ancient Israel, this wasn't the case. You have, again, a hill with terrace slopes, much smaller, going to the contours of the hill, and upon those terraces is where we had our fields planted. Now, also in the time of Judges, there was no central government. In the book of Judges, it tells us repeatedly that the people did that which was right in their own eyes. This is dangerous at the best of times. Other tribes were constantly making raids. Things were dangerous. Things were uncertain. And on top of all of that, now a famine comes, and desperate times are here. Now, we don't know the cause of the famine. The Bible doesn't tell us whether it was God's judgment upon the people of Israel, whether it was locusts, whether it was a drought, whether it was a disease. Whatever it was, the crops had failed and things got scared. Because, in all honesty, when you are a father and a husband, and you have the responsibility of feeding your family, and you can't, and the cries of your hungry children haunt your ears at night, the lines of worry and anxiety on your wife's face cannot escape your eyes, when times get scary, desperate men tend to make desperate decisions. And so in a time of desperation, Elimelech, wanting more than anything to keep his family fed and their well-being done, he moves his family down to Moab, down to the south. Now Elimelech's main name means, my God is king. And he moves his family down to the land of God's enemies, Moab. And there is a picture here of a believer making a bad decision based upon outward circumstances. And it's true that scared people become dangerous people, and scared people make dangerous decisions. Time of crisis. And the tragedy gets even worse because now in verse 3, once they arrive and they're there, Elimelech dies. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, this is tragic at any time, to lose a loved one, to lose a husband. And not to lose a husband when you're surrounded by family, but now she's in a strange and a foreign land. During tragedy, because we so desperately want the answer, we often ask the wrong questions. We ask why, we ask where is God, 
And Naomi is going to have these attitudes as she's trying to figure out what God is doing. Now, for her, she still has her sons. Good thing, too. Because in ancient times, if you were a widow without any family, without any sons, it was like our modern-day homeless. Without any male family members, they were dependent completely upon society. But good news, she might have lost her husband, but she still has her two boys. Verse 4, And they took the wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. And then in verse 5, it gets worse. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman, women were left of her two sons and her husband. Oftentimes when we go through difficulty and hard times, we think to ourselves, well, can't get worse than this. And the lesson we see is don't be so sure. It could always seemingly get worse. Do we still praise God in the midst of these hard times? When everything comes crumbling down around us, do we still see God's light through the shadows? And similar to the time of Naomi, where there is tragedy, and then more tragedy, and then more tragedy, where we have a time of uncertainty, where they don't know how the end is going to come about, we are in that same time of uncertainty. We are in a time where there are those we know and love that have lost their jobs. People are on lockdown. Lonely people are lonelier. There are many questions about government overreach and how much is acceptable. Some are really fearful of catching the virus. Others are really fearful of feeding their families. Regardless of which it is, others are really fearful. Now, with all that, in verse 6, we now get to Naomi's response. And just like her situation is tragic, her response is tragic. Now, we, we see in verse 6 that she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Now, somehow, through the grapevine, Naomi hears that things had picked up back in Bethlehem, which is strangely ironic knowing that the name of Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so in verse 7 she says, I'm going to go home. I've had enough of Moab. I've had enough of this strange and foreign land. It's time for me to go back to the house of bread. And so she begins to pack up. And in verse 7 the Bible says, Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And her two daughters-in-law, also widows, also in a desperate time, also needing answers, want to go with her. They had no place to go. They had no other things to do. They had in their minds, we are a family now. We stick together. And in verse number 8, it's almost too crazy to think that it's true, where they're desiring to go back to the house of bread with her. What does Naomi do? She tries to send them away. She tries to tell them to go back to Moab. She says, go, return each to her mother's house. 
the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that he may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice. They wept. Now, really? This ought to blow our minds. This is where Naomi gets her thinking wrong. Is there really a better place than the house of bread after a famine? Is there really a better place than where God's people are? And yet in her own mind, twisted by disappointment and failure, she tells her daughters-in-law, don't come with me to God's land. Don't come with me to the house of bread. Don't come with me to where God's people are. Stay in Moab. She gives the girls a blessing and tries to send them on her way. And this is so ironic, and it's true, even God's people can have wrong thinking in times of tragedy. Now remember, Naomi had God. She knew God. She knew the source of blessing. Which God is the source of blessing. Good things come from the Lord. But yet, she told the girls to go back home and go back to their pagan Moabite gods. Isn't it true that when we're in the midst of tragedy, that sometimes it can blind us to what is really going on and blind us in such a way that we can even blame God? If you jump down with me to verse 20, in verse 21, look what happens. As she's entering back into the city, we see that the people see her coming and say, Hey, that's Naomi. Hey, hey, look, look, she's back. And she says in verse 20, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? She's in a, in a spot where she says, God had done this to me. This is God's fault that it all happened. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. I am washed up. I am empty. I have nothing left. God has taken every good thing in my life, and he's taken it away. Tragedy tends to blind us when we blame God. And she was looking at herself as the source of blessing. And she was coming up short. She recognized her now as a widow. And her two daughters-in-law that were widows. That she had nothing to offer them. She had nothing to give them. She said, don't come back with me to Bethlehem. You might as well stay where you are because I have nothing. Remember, the, the law says that if a man were to die, the wife was to marry his brother to bring forth an heir. But Naomi had no other sons. And even if she were to get married again, it would take too long to raise up additional children to marry these girls to be heirs. She had nothing to offer. And her blindness was in such a way that Naomi was so fixated on what she could not offer Ruth herself that she became blind to what God could offer Ruth. And in fact, as we see, Ruth is going to find everything she needs, not back in Moab, but in Bethlehem, Judah. 
And one of the lessons that Naomi needs to learn and that we need to learn is that God is more than enough. And that conviction can really be stretched and tried in times of tragedy like we have right now. Do we look around and do we take inventory of what we have? Do we take a look at our dwindling bank account if we're off work? Do we take a look at the resources that we have and decide, I don't have enough. I can't do it. I can't be a blessing. I can't help this area. I can't do what I used to be able to do. I can't, I can't. And one of the things that we need to get through our own minds is that we don't need more than God. And if God, in His providence and His sovereignty, doesn't supply it, then in that moment we don't need it. And one of the things that has bothered me is not only can we have a tragic response of the bitterness that Naomi has, when we look around our world right now, I'm afraid that the Christian response during this corona crisis is just as tragic. Many of our churches are split down the middle because of this. Some are convinced this is not a big deal, that this is a grand government conspiracy. And that's fine. But what's tragic is that their social media is filled with it. Alex Jones is on every Facebook page. And it is post after post on government and politics and the hoax. Isn't our social media supposed to be filled with Christ? Have we lost the big picture? And yet some, on the other part of the equation, are legitimately scared. They're so worried and scared that they wear gloves. And they wear masks. And they even wear masks right, which means they don't have their nose poking out the top. And they bathe themselves in hand sanitizer. And they wouldn't come back to church right away if it was opened. And they're very nervous. And we have people on both sides where the church in some places divided over this, where they're angry at each other, they're not patient with each other, they're not understanding with each other, and the entire unsaved world is watching this, and the church is missing a great opportunity because both sides, the ones that are not scared at all, it's a giant hoax, the ones that are so afraid, it is paralyzing them, they're missing the big picture. The big picture is this. No matter what you believe, this much is true, God allowed this to happen. Friends, it's not God sovereign. <clears throat> it's not God king of the universe. And God in his sovereignty and his providence allowed this coronavirus to invade our land. He allowed the shutdown to happen. He allowed all these things to take place. And there's something bigger going on. We cannot miss it. So if our first theme of chapter 1 was our response in tragedy, our second one is that there's God's providence in tragedy, that there's hope. And just like a green sprig growing out of a blackened forest ravaged by forest fire, 
God's sovereignty in this passage and God's sovereignty outside right now is shining forth when things seem dark and bleakest. There is always hope. In fact, look again in chapter 1, verse 15. When we see Ruth's conversion and her commitment. Orpah has already gone back to Moab. And Naomi is encouraging Ruth to do so. But Ruth says, no, 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 you can't get rid of me that easy. I'm going as well. And in verse 16 and 17, she makes her commitment. Notice how it sounds. She says, entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and where there will I be buried, the Lord will do so to me, and more also, if God but death part me and thee. Doesn't this sound like wedding vows? <clears throat> or she's making a commitment. She's saying that she belonged with Naomi, with Naomi's people. And she makes a vow that she says, If I abandon you, Naomi, may God abandon me. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm here to stay. And Naomi doesn't realize that because she's been blinded by her own response and bitterness to what God is doing, but Ruth is going to be the answer to her prayers. In verse 22, they go back to Bethlehem. I want us to know a phrase that we often miss. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, <clears throat> and they came to Bethlehem, notice when, in the beginning of barley harvest. They went back to the house of bread, Bethlehem, in the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, there's the truth here, that God does not leave his people in famine forever. We often ask why, I heard someone say a long time ago, that Y is a crooked letter, and no one ever made it straight. People often look at tragedy, and they wrongly assume one of two truths about God, that God is either not all-powerful, because if he would, he would stop it, or that God is not good, because why would he let bad things happen? By the way, do you ever notice that the same people that blame God when things are going bad, are also the same ones that never thank him when things are going well. But this is not binary choice. There's a third option. And the third option is that God in his sovereignty and his providence is alive and he's well. And though God did not cause this evil, God works behind the scenes to make good out of this evil, and there is a plan at play that we cannot see. We think about right now with Corona, some of the things that have come out of it. That churches are reaching people through an online ministry done by necessity that would have never reached otherwise. Christians are reminded of the special nature of the church. And they miss it. We've gone now ten weeks at our church without being able to meet. Nova Scotia is pretty strict. We're in a state of emergency. Less than five people are allowed to meet some type of gathering. So it might be a few weeks again more before we can meet. And one of the things that I've loved about seeing from our church is that they've realized that they actually like each other. 
and that they want to be together again. And sometimes some of the silly, petty things that have been dividing people, they realize that's not all that important. And there's a bigger picture at play. There's something more important going on. And this is where, friends, when we get to watch God's hand move in His providence, it is awesome. Now, they come back in the barley harvest. What were Naomi's and Ruth's immediate needs? There's food. Gotta eat. Answered by the barley harvest. What do God's people in our passage need right now? Well, in verse 1, they're in the period of the judges. They're in a time when every man did that which was right in his own heart. Dangerous time. Anarchy reigns. So what do they need? They need a king after God's own heart. And what's going to happen? Is Ruth going to meet Boaz? And Boaz is going to have a son, he's going to have a son, and then we're going to have David, where she'll become the grandmother of King David himself. And why is David so significant? Because his lineage points forward to Jesus Christ. So we get to Christ through the barley harvest. And don't miss this. Who is Christ? Did not Jesus say to us in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life? Where Jesus is invoking Exodus chapter 3, claiming his divinity, that he is God in the flesh, that, that those that come to him shall never hunger, and he that believeth on him shall never thirst. Do you, do you see what happened here? That we get Christ, who comes from the lineage of David, which came to us because Boaz and Ruth met. All that happened because of a tragedy of a famine and the tragedy of a death. And then death again. And yet within that tragedy, though they couldn't see it at the time, above their pay grade, God was moving the pieces around, not only to provide for their immediate needs for food through the barley harvest, but also to provide a Savior, Christ Himself, the bread of life through the barley harvest. And when tragedy befalls us, friends, you and I need a harvest that results in a King and a Savior. We need to not be blinded by the tragedy of the immediate, but to be able to see and understand that God is working within our midst even when we can't see it. And if anything, I pray that our church and your church, that we get this. We grumble and we complain and we get mad about government overreach and we, we wave the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and all that is fine and we get on Facebook and we, we, to make sure everyone knows our political opinion, but have we forgotten the big picture? That God is working in our midst and He is doing something. He's allowed this to happen and something is going on even when I can't see it. We know this by faith, do we not? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Friends, this happens for God's purpose and God's timing. This very well could get worse before it gets better. But we put our trust 
and the King of kings, the Lord of lords, yes, even the Lord of the barley harvest, Jesus Christ. Friend, my challenge is how is our response in this tragedy? Are we so worked up by legitimate needs or by perceived needs? Or are we in division with our church because we're not in agreement on how to handle this? And we're missing the big picture. The big picture is that God is always on the throne. His finger is still on the big red control button. And God is doing something through this for his glory. And he's reaching people through our churches. Friends, let us see that even in the midst of tragedy, there is always hope in the harvest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Once again, thank you for our salvation. Lord, do a great work within us as we see your truth, your providence, your sovereignty, for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen.